Well, metapoetics have to come to an end, and we have to get to the plot. And so we are coming to the plot. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we have been slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. The last episode of this podcast involved, oh, what do I want to say, the opening 15 lines of Canto 32 of Inferno. And that was a very metapoetic, very crazy, up in the stratosphere bit that opened our introduction to the final pit of hell. Now, in line 16 through 39 of Canto 32, we're going to get the plot much more underway with some distinct problems involved. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. You're welcome to look it up there. You're welcome to print it off. You're welcome to make notes on it. And you're welcome to drop comments there in which, well, either I or others could become involved in a larger discussion about this very passage, Canto 32 of Inferno, lines 16 through 39. When we were way on down in the dark pit, well below the feet of the giants, and I was still staring back at the high wall, I heard someone say to me, Watch where you put your foot down. Go on, so you don't bumble on the heads of these miserable, weary brothers with your feet. So I turned around and saw out before me, and also beneath my feet, a lake of ice with a surface more like glass than water. So thick a cloudy veil was never made over the Austrian Danube in winter, nor over the dawn under a freezing sky, as there was here. For if Mount Tambura had fallen on it, or Pietrapana, the ice wouldn't have cracked even out at its edge. As when frogs sit and croak with their snouts just out of the water during the season when rustic women dream of gleaning, these sorrowful shades, pale in pallor, were crying, held in the ice up to the spot where the shade of shame appears, playing the music of storks with their teeth. Each one turned his face down. Their mouths gave testimony to the cold and their eyes to their heart-deep grief. Now you know that we have come to an ice sheet that holds these final centers, that they are frozen in it. Step back and think for a second. The center of the earth, no, the center of the universe is ice, not heat. We want to talk about why that is. We want to talk about where this idea of the center of the earth as ice comes from. And we want to talk about some strange problems inside this passage. The passage starts out when we were way down, down in the dark pit, well below the feet of the giants, and I was still staring back at that wall. I heard someone say to me, let's just stop right there. This is a tough line, well below the feet of the giants. It's a tough line that has caused hundreds of years of debate. Antaeus has set them down, right? They've walked on. They can't have walked very far. Can they have gotten very far already? Probably not. We did have 15 lines of metapoetics, but, you know, they've walked a little bit away. Either this pit 
really slopes, is on a real downhill decline, which could be possible. It's then strange that Virgil and Dante can walk it without slipping their way down it. But, okay, therefore, if it was on a really steep incline, then they would be looking back up at the feet of those giants. However, many people are dissatisfied with that and see this as a much more gently sloping landscape toward the center of the pit. It is sloping down, but sloping much more gently. After all, the Pilgrim and Virgil can walk across it. So therefore, this is always the claim, the giants must be standing on a shelf or a ridge. Believe it or not, this question of whether the giants are standing on a ridge has caused gallons of ink to be spilled, acres of paper and trees to be cut down and made into paper. It's caused a lot of debate. And if Antaeus is standing on a shelf, how does he then reach all the way down to the floor of this ice sheet to set them down? It may be a problem in the poetry on several levels. It may be a problem that the line is corrupted in some way. We rarely talk about this on this podcast, but it may be that the line is corrupted in some way. And so there's a way in which the giant's standing there. It's not fully revealed in the line because the grammar's been torqued. And I will tell you, the line is a little bit funky in the Florentine. It could also be that Dante himself just nods off. I mean... It does happen even with the best poets. Dante could nod. And, you know, the the question of where they are in relation to the feet of the giants, it's just not something he solves because he didn't think about it or it just blips right past him. I just want to tell you that that line has caused acres of debate. You can get in line and be in part of that debate, too. I'm not going to. I'm just going to tell you they're looking back and they can see the feet of the giants. And then we get this bit, even stranger to me, of dialogue. Watch where you put your foot down. Go on so you don't bumble on the heads of these miserable weary brothers with your feet. And now we know that these people are frozen in the ice sheet with just their heads sticking out. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But here's the big question. Who says this? It is an ongoing and very pressing question. Francesco Toraca in 1905 proposed, and I love this solution, No one else loves it. Proposes that this is Virgil. And Virgil says, watch where you put your foot down. You'll notice that in my reading of the passage to you, I didn't give this a voice. I didn't put this in Virgil's voice. Watch where you put your foot down. I didn't do it in any other voice. Why? Because I don't know who says it. Toraka says it's Virgil. It doesn't sound like Virgil because of that miserable, weary brothers. Virgil, remember, embraces the pilgrim when the pilgrim wishes for Filippo Argenti to be torn apart in the river Styx. So why would Virgil here suddenly be concerned about the pain that the damned might feel? If it is Virgilian, then it makes Virgil's character extremely... Extremely complicated, even contradictory, which, listen, I'm all for. That's part of why I like it, is it makes Virgil deep, 
deep is contradictory in a modern sense that we think of character as having depth because character is contradictory. But it doesn't seem like it should be Virgil. Most people think it's one of the people ahead of us. We're about to come on a pair of brothers who are tangled up together in this ice sheet, tangled very close to each other. Maybe it's one of them. There is a big speaker that lies ahead of us. Maybe it's that big speaker. Dante is super careful about leaving all the dialogue cues in comedy and he to me and me to him and I to he and blah, 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 blah. He's constantly making sure that we understand who's speaking. No one ever takes credit for this line. And I think given Dante's poetics, this has to be deliberate. We've entered the final circle of hell and we find here a disembodied voice, the voice, uh, a ghostly presence of a voice, the voice of kind of nightmare that comes out of the blood. Blue. And the voice makes reference to brothers. Don't tread on the heads, bumble on the heads of these miserable, weary brothers. Well, yeah, we are going to meet a couple brothers. Yes, in fact, right ahead of us. And that brotherly bit calls us back to the last passage with the tongue that says mama and papa familial relationships. So it does call us back to that. And that line was all about how that a tongue that can start out saying mama and papa in innocence could never describe this final pit. And then here we have a disembodied voice. There must be some irony working this out. You should also know that because of the way Italian works, unlike English, the pronoun may be missing here. And some translators fill in a possible missing pronoun and therefore translate the lines something like this. Go on so you don't bumble on the heads of your miserable, weary brothers with your feet. The definite article is often used as a substitute for a possessive pronoun, your feet in this case, and then maybe your brothers. If it's your brothers, it's even weirder. How are these the pilgrim's brothers? We will explore that in future episodes of this podcast, but let's just say we're about to meet a hassle of people from the Italian peninsula, traitors who have ruined Dante's own world. And isn't it interesting that here, brother kinship would be foregrounded? So I turned and saw out before me, the passage says, and also beneath my feet, a lake of ice with a surface more like glass than water. This is a clear sheet of ice. It's like an ice cube in a high-end bar, right? No cracks, no fuzzy cloudy bits in the ice cube, just a perfect clear ice cube. Dante's probably picking this up from Albertus Magnus, who claims that long freezing squeezes the moisture out of the ice. <laughs> this is pre-chemistry. pre, pre -chemistry. Somehow the moisture 
temperature is pulled out of the ice and the ice becomes completely clear. But we should note that he means more than that because we've been forewarned that we're headed here all along. I have to go all the way back to Canto 14 when Virgil is talking about the old man in Crete. Remember the old man in Crete, this statue that's in a mountain and it's crying and it's got the gold head and all the different parts of the body. We went over this endlessly on the podcast. I spent a lot of time on the old man of Crete. And one of the things we learned about the old man of Crete is his tears flow down and create the rivers of hell. They fall, I'm at Canto 14, line 115. They fall into this valley rock to rock, make Acheron and Styx and Phlegathon. Then they go lower by this narrow duct till there are no more mountains to descend where they make Cocytus. Where that dead pool is, you will soon see. Here let the matter end. Virgil calls out Cocytus, or as it is in the Florentine, Cochicho, in the 14th canto. And here we are. We have arrived at Cocytus. Notice that it is the sum of the rivers of hell. It is all of them together have been flowing sticks and Acheron and Phlegathon down to this point. And let me point out another moment where Dante may nod. Phlegathon, remember, is a boiling river of blood. Then Cocytus must be at least a lurid pink, if not red. But it seems here as if the ice is crystal clear. I think perhaps our poet has nodded and forgotten that Phlegathon is a river of boiling blood because, listen, if Dante had thought of it, he would point out the redness of this ice from the freezing blood. You should also know that there is one more river we haven't mentioned yet. There are actually four sources for the ice sheet in Cocytus. There is, as we've already discussed, Acheron, where Karen runs his boat around. There's Styx, that marshy swamp, where they found Filippo Argenti and where Phlegas plies his boat. And then there's the boiling river of blood, Phlegathon. But there's one more river. We will come to it soon enough. It is Lethe. It is the river that flows all the way down Mount Purgatory. It is the final river in which the redeemed are dipped before they enter paradise and forget their sins. This ice sheet metaphorically includes all the sins of the world. All the rivers have flowed down full of all the sins that have ever been committed by humanity and frozen here. Now, you're going to ask, why isn't it growing and overflowing? You got to take the geography you're given. I realize that's a point that always bugs me. Why isn't Cockatoo just filling up? And why doesn't, if all these rivers flow down, why do eventually hell just fill up to the top with water? Okay, we got to take the world we're given. And this is the world we're given. And these rivers flow down into this place. But all these rivers, three of them from hell and one of them from purgatory, from the sins of those washed in purgatory, contain all the sins of the world. And this is what's redemptive for Dante the Christian. The sins of the world are ultimately frozen at the center of the universe. 
No, they're not allowed to wash out across the expanse of the heavens, but are instead contained. For Dante, that is hope. He goes on, so thick a cloudy veil was never made over the Austrian Danube in winter, nor over the dawn under a freezing sky. The dawn in the medieval Florentine is the Tanai. It's the river that runs into the Black Sea through Ukraine. And, of course, the Danube is the river that runs into the Black Sea through Hungary. So we have two geographical references close to Italy, not in Italy. We're told that both these rivers freeze. They did in Dante's day freeze solid in the winter. This ice sheet is, uh, what do I want to say, is more murky than that. Not not uh, necessarily the sheet itself, which seems to be glass, but the air over it is murkier than that kind of frozen fog that builds up over these rivers, the Danube and the Don. And then notice it also includes some local geography in the mountains. If Mount Tambura, that's a mountain near Luca, it's been highly debated exactly which mountain that is. I'm just going to say it's what we now modernly call Mount Tambura. So if these mountains had fallen on it or Pietrapana, that's another. Pietrapana is another mountain near Mount Tambura. Again, there's some question about exactly what is meant here. The ice wouldn't have cracked even out at its edge. Remember, there's that bit about falling rocks and all the rocks of the world bear down down on this pit. Here we see that even if the mountains of the world were to fall onto Cocytus, it wouldn't break. It wouldn't fall apart. It wouldn't even crack out at its edge. This goes back to the previous passage. Unlike those rocks that built the walls of Thebes, those rocks came apart. This ice sheet would not even come apart under any circumstances. It's worse than anything in local geography. And I love the way that we are so far down here in the center pit of hell And yet the poet comes back to local geography, to the Danube, to the Don, to certain mountains that he knows. The poet comes back to terrestrial geography, always calling us back to the quote unquote real world. Not that this world isn't supposedly real in Inferno, but you know what I mean. Back to the world that we all know. And this local geography almost forms an ironic counterpoint, right? Here's this world that we know, the Danube and all that the Danube signifies. Here's this world that we all know. And the final pit of hell is being compared to it, a jarring comparison, a a lifeblood artery like the Danube is suddenly being referenced here in the darkest pit of the universe. Before we pass on in the passages, let me say one more thing about Cocytus, this lake. Cocytus is from a Greek word meaning to lament or to weep. Dante may not know that, that that is the root of the word. Instead, he probably knows Cocytus from two sources. Now, don't forget that the word that Dante uses is cochito. He knows cochito from Virgil's Aeneid. In the sixth book of Aeneid, at lines 131 through 132, and then again at 296 to 297, 
Cochito is described as a deep whirlpool, a wild place deep in the underworld, a kind of torrid whirlpool that spews its sand about. Uh, it's encircles a forest in the underworld that Aeneas and the command Sybil have to transverse. Dante kind of knows about this place from that reference to Virgil, but he also knows about it from another place. And I think this might even be more important. In the Vulgate, that is the Latin translation of the Bible, in the book of Job, chapter 21, verse 33, Job says that the wicked, even though they prosper up in this world, will be received into the valley of, and in the Vulgate, it says, Cochito. I think this may actually be a more important reference for Dante to Cacatus, that it's an ice sheet. It may be derived from Isidore of Seville, who claims the center of the earth may be an ice sheet and makes a claim about Cacatus as an ice sheet. He may be getting it from there, but I see much more the way the ice here is created, the way it's maintained, its look, which is like glass, all of that creation from the various rivers. That is part of all Dante's imagination. And notice how Dante needs to know how it works. Other people, let's say even Isidore of Seville, maybe just put an ice sheet down near Tartarus, down at the bottom of the world. Or Job, you know, the wicked are going to get tossed down into this valley of Cochito. Okay, fine and good enough. But Dante needs to know how it works. Well, what's there? And how does that all work? And how would there be ice there, Isidora? It's Dante's mechanical imagination, the need to fill in the details. And I find that so much to his credit. He doesn't let things slip, except for who says three lines of dialogue here, and maybe whether the giants are standing on a shelf, and maybe whether Cocytus is itself red from the bloody river of Phlegathon. We then come out to these very rustic similes, as when frogs sit and croak, their snouts just out of the water during the season when rustic women often dream of gleaning. I mean, this is such pastoral imagery, and it's so jarring against the scene that we are coming upon, which is the damned frozen in this lake. Frozen. Can you imagine being frozen up to your neck in a lake for the rest of eternity? Yet we start out with this very pastoral simile, frogs sit and croak. Remember, we've seen frogs sitting and croaking before. The baroters, before their pit of pitch, were frogs sitting and croaking. But there's a difference, and we want to talk about that difference in a minute. That difference has to do with the baroters were mobile. They could move around. These sinners can't move. They are frozen in this ice. And we want to talk more about that in a second. So there they are, the frogs. They're snouts out of the water during the season. When rustic women often dream of gleaning, these women, these peasant women who are hoping for an early harvest, they and those ladies who helped Amphion, those muses, these are our only female presences in this final pit of hell. We are entering an 
all-male world. And it's interesting that we have these two fleeting references positively, particularly in a medieval context, positively toward women. Now, we, we may argue that this is all kind of sexist gibberish and, you know, it's making women be this kind of um, innocent background to evil. Yeah, yeah, okay, 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 okay. But let, let's just give it to it for the medieval context. We have these two rather attractive references to women, to the muses who helped Amphians sing up the walls of Thebes, adhere to rustic women waiting to glean. And notice our two references to women are to very very high women, muses, and then to peasant women, rustic women, who are going to go out with their sides and glean. Notice that scale of women is contrasted to this ice sheet and the all-male world ahead. The one thing you can't do on an ice sheet is glean. You can't harvest anything off an ice sheet, not anything I know of. Okay, well, maybe you can harvest ice, but not any crops do I know of that you can harvest off an ice sheet. Notice these pastoral references and these feminine references set against this blisteringly bleak scenario. These sorrowful shades, the passage says, pale and pallor were crying, held in the eyes up to the spot where the shade of shame appears. That's blush on the cheek. They're up to their necks, playing the music of storks with their teeth. Bad songs, clucking songs. Remember, Dante started this whole canto, Canto 32? If I could write brutal and clucking verses, and what do storks do with their bills? They make a clacking, clucking sound. In fact, Brunetta Latini in the Tresor makes direct reference to this. Early in the Tresor, Latini says, storks having no tongues make odd clacking sounds. Isn't that what Dante had hoped for? Didn't Dante hope for this kind of verse, the clacking, clucking, harsh verse? And in fact, he may not be able to do it. This is so deeply ironic. But the damned can, and especially the really damned, the bad boys down here in this pit, they can create the kind of sounds that he claims he needs to be able to create to fully describe, to create this pit, to build its walls as the muses helped Amphion build the walls of Thebes. They've got the language that he doesn't. Each one turned his face down. Their mouths gave testimony to the cold and their eyes to their heart-deep grief. This is a loud Place. Just think about where we are. We're standing on an ice sheet. The damned are in this ice. They're up to their necks in it, and their teeth are chattering. Think about what that sounds like. Think about standing on a frozen lake. Think about people being in that lake with their heads exposed. Think about the chattering and wailing sounds that they would make. This is a frightening, nightmarish place. It is a place in which we find the final revelation of evil. Remember we've been told that the punishments of the damned involve contrapasso, suffering in the same way you caused others to suffer, or suffering metaphorically, or suffering the opposite of what you made others do. Here, we find people 
frozen in ice. What could be the contrapasso here? The final revelation of the damned here is that they are immobile. They are frozen in ice. This is the core of Dante's theology. Goodness is movement and evil is paralysis. Immobility is the end stop of evil. This to me is such a beautiful concept. We're going to have to wait all the way up to Paradiso to define that movement, that motion is the nature of goodness. But just think about where we've been and how we've been working this out. We've seen so much pointless movement, Francesca and Paolo up on the wind with the rest of the lustful. Yes, they're moving, but it's not with any directional purpose. Then we've seen in fraud lots of moving people. We saw them moving round the pits, the pimps, for example, or the hypocrites, or the schismatics. They were walking round and round the pits. Even before them, the homosexuals were running on the burning sands. It's all pointless movement. But notice that the movement from the homosexuals to the schismatics has gotten more and more confined. The pits have gotten smaller as we've gone down. We know that already. There's also just now a a circular motion. It seems like the homosexuals in the burning sands can just run in any direction so long as they keep moving. Then we get a very confined movement, and now we reach finally this last bid, which is immobility. And we were kind of alerted to this in the last pit of fraud with Master Adam and Sinon. They were not able to move because of their diseased bodies. Some people, like Gianni Skiki and Mirror, could move very fast, these rabid souls, but others were stuck. And now we've come to a world where everybody is stuck. I think the notion that evil is finally paralysis is an intriguing intellectual concept. People who do bad things ultimately end up immobilized. Don't think about that in Tante's terms. Think about it in your own world. Um, that people who, let's say, abuse their children or people who abuse their spouses, that these people ultimately become so sunk down in what they're doing that there is no motion from them. There's violence, but there's no actual real motion, progress, forward. There is no music of the spheres because the spheres turn and the planets turn. And we'll discover that the spheres and the planets turn in Paradiso because angels are spinning them, because motion, movement is the heart of goodness, the movement toward people, the movement toward reconciliation, the movement toward love. That is the heart of the goodness of the world. In the end, the Dantean vision, which I think is so metaphysically interesting, is that evil is immobility. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope that you will subscribe, that you will rate this podcast. I can really use that. And I hope you'll keep walking with me because this ice sheet is going to go on. And this bit we've already seen is so much about the pilgrim. We're going to have a lot more 
more about the pilgrim ahead. His reaction to the ice sheet, his reaction to the paralysis, his reaction to the figures around him. They are crucial to the 32nd Canto and crucial to the way that Inferno finally works itself out. I'm Mark Scarborough. I can't wait to do the next episode of this podcast. I hope you'll be there with me. See you soon.